So, Jay, what happens when Sebastian Shaw finally catches up with his son Shinobi? Oh, Sebastian kills him. I mean, allegedly. Allegedly? Well, it happened off-panel. Ouch, ignominious. Not only that, it was after Shinobi hadn't even shown up in a comic in six years. Dang. And then nobody even mentioned it for another four. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 366 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to some stuff we haven't heard about in kind of a long time. Yeah, because today we are going to be looking at the Beast miniseries, which is actually secretly a karma miniseries inexplicably narrated by Beast. Yeah, we'll get to more of that, but I I mean, I guess I kind of get it from a marketing standpoint. People knew Beast from the comics, from the cartoon, he was, you know, one of the go-to X-Men when you think about X-Men. Karma, less so. I mean, remember, she disappeared from the book she appeared in first, well, almost first, New Mutants, after like half a dozen issues and wasn't seen for years. Right. Although, it's it's a weird choice in general. Like, I think if I were making, you know, a Beast miniseries, I would have had Beast involved by more than happenstance. It's true, he could do beastie things, like, you know, science, or, well, mostly science these days. I mean, this is the mid-90s, he mostly was working on curing the legacy virus, or similar sciencey stuff. He wasn't as much an active member of the X-Men. He does banter and swing around a little bit, that's pretty beastie. So I feel pretty good about that. But here's the thing, we're not just talking about the Karma, I mean, Beast miniseries, we're also talking about a random X-Force fill-in issue, which, conveniently enough, came out right around the same time, that leads into it. Right, if you hadn't read that X-Force issue, which isn't mentioned in the Beast miniseries at any point, you would be at a loss as to how the events of the Beast miniseries were set up. Yeah, when I was writing my notes for the Beast miniseries, which originally was going to be the only content of this episode, there were a lot of question mark, question mark, question mark, what bits in there, and not just because that's, I guess, my podcast catchphrase. So what do you think about that? I mean, a lot of the time you see a miniseries or something coming out of a specific issue or a specific arc, and I don't think that's necessarily fundamentally a bad thing, but I also feel really strongly that miniseries should stand on their own under the vast majority of circumstances. Or at least they should have a little bit of a recap, or at the very, very least, a narrative caption. I think we talked about this last episode with all the space stuff, that there were all of these bits about the Silver Surfer and about Captain Marvel, well, Ms. Marvel at the time, or I guess Binary at the time, that were just not mentioned. Like, you should really give readers a chance to understand that, oh, 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 this did happen before, I just haven't read that comic, as opposed to... Is this just coming out of nowhere? Is someone just making this up? Like, it's good to know which. Either is fine, but it's good to know which. While I think it's okay to step away from the axiom that every comic is someone's first, I think it is worth remembering that every number one comic is probably someone's first, or at least a comic being read by someone who's not necessarily attached to other series. It's true, it's true. And especially with this X-Force issue being a fill-in between major writers, between Jeff Loeb and John Francis Moore. But... Before we dive into any of this, since this is really all about Karma and her family, maybe we should talk a little bit about Shan Koi Man's truly awful past. Growing up in Vietnam, Shan Koi Man and her twin brother, Tran Koi Man, had the same power. 
they could possess others. She generally used her powers for good. He generally used them to mess with and kill people. He's the evil twin. They also had two younger siblings, Leong and Na. Their evil uncle, Winnak Koi, helped the family leave the country. First, he brought Tran to meet him in the United States, and then sent for the rest of the family who headed out on a boat. That didn't go particularly well. Pirates attacked, killing Shen's dad and assaulting Shen and her mother, and her mom died soon after. Meanwhile, in the United States, Tran had found his, you know, ideal match in his likewise evil uncle and had been helping him out with crime stuff. Karma refused to participate, so their uncle kidnapped Leong and Naga to force her to join up with him. She ended up possessing Spider-Man to help rescue the kids, and then to prevent Spider-Man from dying, had to kill and psychically absorb her twin brother, Tran. Unlike Charles Xavier, who absorbed his twin in the womb. Valid point. Karma then joined the New Mutants, but she left and agreed to help her uncle for a year in exchange for him helping the team find Mirage and Xavier, who'd been kidnapped by Viper and Silver Samurai. Karma was lost between issues in the explosion at the end of that adventure. The team eventually found her and freed her from possession by the Shadow King. That was a whole thing. And after the mutant massacre, the New Mutants went to check on Leong and Na. It turned out... The apartment was empty that they were staying in, and when they got there and turned on the light, the whole thing blew up. Now, Karma ended up quitting the team to find the kids. We next saw her in a Wolverine comic for a while, um, because her uncle was crime-lording around in Madripoor as Tiger Tiger's rival. Wolverine almost killed her uncle, but Karma convinced him not to. She said that she still needed to keep him around for her hunt for her younger siblings. And aside from briefly teaming up with X-Force during the Child's Play crossover, that was the last we saw of Karma or her family. Until now. Which brings us to X-Force number 62, Human Nature. This fill-in issue is written by John Dokes, penciled by Kevin Lau and Adam Polina, inked by Andrew Papoy and Norman Lee, colored by Leanne Clark, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. I'd never heard of John Dokes, but apparently he, for a long time, was Marvel's senior VP of Integrated Sales and Marketing, Publishing, and Digital Media. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but the point is, he hasn't done much writing. As far as I know, this is the only issue he wrote for Marvel. Kinda shows. I mean, I liked this one. I thought it was fun. And I gotta say, as someone who's never written a comic myself, I don't think I could do this well. It's not terrible. It's, it's just, it, it just feels not, not quite up to the standard that we're used to. Well, you know what is pretty great? A story I found about John Dokes trying to figure out who he was. Apparently, many years ago during Marvel's annual softball game when Stan Lee was alive, Stan Lee asked to pitch. I mean, he was still old at this point. And um, Dokes was at bat and managed to hit Stan Lee with the ball and knock him the hell over, which apparently Stan took in very good humor, although he did uh, milk the minor injuries for as much sympathy as he could for the rest of the day. Well, then. You say he was you say he was still very old as if he has subsequently became less old. Well, you know, it was not so early that he was not old, you know? He had the aviators, I'm sure, and the mustache, but it was like a gray mustache. Already maybe the word you're looking for. It's not like my job is using words, Jay. Come on. No, I just like the idea that he started aging in reverse after that or something. Oh. Like someone from Orc and Mork and Mindy. I'll take your word for it. Yeah, that's, that's how they worked. Uh, also, there were eggs. It was a whole thing. Anyway, all of that aside, let's get some narration. It is said that through a child's eyes, the world is a wondrous place. 
And in this case, that child's eyes are freaking huge because Kevin Lau is back one more time after last issue. You remember Kevin Lau did the third part of the Shatterstar saga, which was like super mangatacular. All the women are very soft and round and tiny and all the men are these giant craggy monstrosities with like 4,000 abs. It's that again. And similarly, it's still pretty fun. Adam Polina does a few pages, but this is mostly Kevin Lau running the show. So... The, the giant eyes in question belong to Leong and Na Khoi Men. They're being experimented on in an extremely elaborate sci-fi lab by a former Genosian scientist by the name of Dr. Graves. And this lab is being run by Shinobi Shaw, currently of the Hellfire Club. Shinobi Shaw? Son of Sebastian Shaw, who totally knows what sex is? Yeah, so two questions about this whole thing, Jay. Uh, why does Shinobi care about removing mutants' powers? How does that help? I mean, the Hellfire Club has always been about the cutting-edge technology of, of warfare and weaponry. You've got to remember, they were one of the major forces behind the development and propagation of the Sentinels. I guess, and I mean... He knows that Sebastian's after him, so I guess he could use this against Sebastian so that he couldn't, you know, absorb lasers and punch real hard. We could use it against all sorts of enemies. It's true. Uh, second question, how did Shinobi Shaw get a hold of these children? They've been gone for more than 10 years worth of comics. Last we saw, it seemed like the Marauders probably got them. Like, did we miss something? Um, what you have to understand is that Leong and Ra are actually, they look like children, but they're actually MacGuffins. Ah, ah, that makes sense. MacGuffins are often indistinguishable from actual children. Yeah, they never really have much in the way of agency or distinct personalities. They just kind of show up or disappear when the story calls for them. I mean, the last time we saw them was, what, New Mutants Annual number 2, right? When Spiral did that thing uh, in the wild ways to turn them into adult twin-looking brainwashed kids? Spoiler, she's going to do something kind of similar here. She is. But not yet, because right now we meet Shinobi Shaw's two only appearance henchmen. We've got Clearcut, a guy with a broadsword and cloud strife hair and this red and gray outfit that makes him look like an extreme sports samurai. He is cold, but honorable. And he has the power to do, I don't know, windy sword something something. Uh, we've also got Mind Meld, who is, is a, a silver-toned lady in a fashionable black crop top, green pants with big buttons and suspenders. Not, not Mickey Mouse pants, if that's what you're picturing based on that description, which is definitely what I would be picturing. Plated boots and asymmetrical gauntlets of some sort. And Mind Meld is sadistic and amoral. She's got the power to put one person's mind into another's body. Not, not mind swap, but, but so that both minds are jammed into one body and the first body goes unconscious. It's actually a pretty cool and novel power. Hmm. She's also, I think, the first gender nonconforming character I remember covering from an X-book on this show. Like, I know Jesse Drake was the first known trans character in Marvel from 1994's Marvel Comics Presents number 150. Uh, Jesse actually just came back in Marvel Voices Pride. But this is uh, the first time, I think, in an X-book. So, yeah, Mind Meld is consistently referred to with feminine pronouns, but as Miles pointed out earlier, the art in this book has massive gender dimorphism, and she's drawn in the same style that male characters are drawn. At one point, Boom Boom also makes a shitty joke about that that makes us think that this is at least nominally supposed to be either a trans or very specifically gender nonconforming um, woman. Yeah, so... Credit to the book that the only character that's shitty about it is the character that tends to be shitty about things, even if I wish that wasn't the case. 
uncredit to the book about the fact that the shittiness is one of the only indicators that it's there at all and that it's a villain. There is that. You know, 1997, so there we go. Yeah, I'm going to say that that's still not a great excuse. Oh, yeah, for real. Anyway, X-Force shows up in time to stop any funny business with the young Koiman kids. Shatterstar and Clearcut have, have an honor-measuring you know, sword fight. Mind Meld, meanwhile, crams Boom Boom's mind into Sunspot's body with him. Domino's mind into Caliban's body with him. And uh, has has both of those women drop unconscious. And those are really two of the biggest guns of the team. They're not necessarily the most impressive power-wise. Well, actually, you know, Boom Boom actually probably is. She's probably the most powerful member of the team at this point, just in ter- terms of sheer destructive c- capacity. But with them not only out of the fight, but functionally completely imp- helpless and imperiled, the fight's pretty much over and the rest of the team is captured. On the upside, the unconscious bodies of Domino and Boom Boom look very comfortable and at peace, but I think that's just how Kevin Lau tends to draw women. I don't think it's just that. Actually, one of the things that really impressed me about the art is that they look unconscious. They don't look like they are posing like elegantly and stiffly with their eyes closed, which is what you get a lot of the time with unconscious characters in comics. You rarely get like that actual sense of gravity and sort of a limp body weight. You know, that that's a really good point. Well, as all of this is going on, as all of the heroes are taken into the requisite nearby prison cells, Clearcut subtly slips a key into Domino's belt. In the prison cells, Domino and Caliban bicker in their currently one head about a song that's stuck in Caliban's head. Sunspot and Boom Boom have a more interesting conversation, though. Remember, Sunspot and Karma were two of the founding New Mutants. Sunspot was, I believe, the youngest along with Wolfsbane, and Karma was the oldest. And he feels really guilty that he never helped Karma find her siblings, that she's been looking all this time. So Boom Boom says, dude, just talk to the kids. Comfort them. You can help now. But there's no chance, because Shinobi comes to negotiate with Sunspot. Why do you bother with this trash when you can take your rightful place by my side? Your father would have loved to watch you rise through the ranks of the Hellfire Club. Sorry, Shinobi, he's still not going to tell you what sex is. Bobby, indeed, refuses to either join or tell Shinobi what sex is. So Shaw just gives the kids to Spiral, who just suddenly shows up out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, she does that. She's a teleporter, but it's definitely not really given any context, either before or after. Let's talk a little about who Spiral is, just for those now tuning in. Spiral is the on-again, off-again servant and ally of Mojo, who's the dictator of the parallel Mojoverse, um, obsessed with television. Now, Spiral originally is heavily hinted to have been a woman named Ricochet Rita, with whom Longshot became briefly involved during his first eponymous miniseries, and whom Mojo later captured and drove insane by basically lashing her to the front of his his interdimensional space-time ship and forcing her to take in the whole of reality at once. Somewhere along the way, she got an extra four arms and the power to teleport through time and space. She's also the proprietress of The Body Shop, where she physically modifies her victims and or clients, usually clients, who in the past have voluntarily included Betsy Braddock, then, well, and now again, Captain Britain, and Rachel Summers. And I think probably most notably, Lady Deathstrike and the Reavers. Right, I always forget that those are those are spiral work. Oh, yeah. No, she has a, a varied repertoire. The versatile lady. A lot of arms. 
Well, Shinobi's no fool. I did have a straight face as I was saying that, by the way. So he knows... Yeah, I can verify. <laughs> ...that Clearcut uh, has betrayed him. So to stop Clearcut, Mindmeld crams her mind into his body to knock him out, at which point Shaw just shoves the merged henchman into his anti-mutant machine, because he is a proper bad guy who doesn't care about his allies and will sacrifice them for little to no reason. X-Force is still out, though. I mean, they were able to use that key once everyone woke up to get out of prison, and they kick everyone's asses and blow everything up because X-Force is X-Force. And I do love Domino's line to Shinobi as she punches him. Payback is a me. <laughs> nice. It's a me, Payback. Are you Charles Martinet? I can't believe somebody other than Charles Martinet's gonna play Mario in that movie, and I can't believe it's freaking Star-Lord. Are, are we just gonna ignore Bob Hoskins here? I think about Bob Hoskins all the time. I'm thinking about Bob Hoskins right now. And uh, also that one wrestler guy that played Mario in the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. Wait, was that live action? I always thought that was animated. Uh, there were live action intro segments, and it was, um, I forget his name. I think he had a rubber band on his face when he was in a band. I don't know. My Mario knowledge is, is sporadic. I'm, I'm not Mario explaining the Mario men. Anyway, point being... Uh, Clearcut is fine. He was put into the anti-mutant machine, uh, but it turns out he's not a mutant. He's just a mysterious badass with powers of unknown origin who apparently owed Cable a debt for something mysterious. I mean, I guess at this point, if you're a new character, either you have a secret past with Wolverine or with Cable. Take your pick. Now, as we alluded to in the cult open, this is going to be Shinobi's last appearance on panel for over a decade until he comes back from the dead in Ex Necrotia, having sometime in the interim been killed by his father. I mean, we know it's after House of M, because Shinobi was one of the 198 or so mutants to retain his powers, but, like, yeah, we just we just don't even see it happen. The only time we find out is when Sebastian is surprised to see his son that he apparently killed show up again after Selene resurrects a bunch of people. Yeah, and we really only have Sebastian's word that he's the one who killed Shinobi. I mean, Shinobi seems to agree, but, like, still, what an ignominious fall for a character with such a precipitous pulsing, throbbing rise. I thought you were going to say knowledge of sex. I mean, that too. Uh, anyway, that's it for Shinobi, but that is not it for the tragic fate of Karma's family. So let's go into beast number one, Bad Karma. This was written by Keith Giffen, penciled by Cedric Nocon, inked by Jaime Mendoza and Hack Shack Studios, colored by Marie Javins, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Kolya Fuse. And um, again, this should be Karma number one and not Beast number one. Eh, probably would have sold less. So this opens on the Australian Outback, where Gateway is porting Viper in for a clandestine meeting with Spiral. Viper, of course, being a aficionado of the color green and uh, Nazis, because she's part of Hydra, uh... This is strange. We've seen Gateway help bad guys before. He helped the Reavers when he first showed up. He helped Onslaught during Onslaught. Now he's helping Viper. We don't know why. Presumably there are some weird obligations or control or something. Maybe he's just lawful neutral. Uh, maybe. He just has to teleport anybody who wants to be teleported. You think he'd teleport us somewhere? I mean, probably not. Yeah, probably not. I, I don't think we're major enough characters. Yeah, we were just henchmen in X-Men 92. I think we got killed off panel, come to think of it. Mm -hmm. I love how Cedric Nocon draws Spiral. Her body language is phenomenal because she's got so many arms. And he actually uses them. A lot of artists will just sort of pose her arms like 
just hang it out around her and really only have her use two at once when she's not in a fight. He has her doing stuff with all of them at pretty much any given time. Yeah, the first panel in particular that we fully see her, two of her hands are messing with her cape in various ways. She has two on her hips at different angles. One is pulling back her hair on one side. The other is gesturing off to the side for emphasis. It's awesome. In general, I really, really like the way Nokan draws body language and draws bodies. Agreed, yeah. Like, this does seem to be kind of a rushed issue. We'll talk more about this, but backgrounds pretty much don't exist most of the time. Mm-hmm. But the actual figure drawing is, is solid. It really is. And this is, I, I, and again, I Spiral obviously is, is sort of the, the highlight character for this, but he draws really good arms. It's true, and everyone's got those. Everyone in this comic, at least. Uh, well, yes. Uh, speaking of people with arms, meanwhile in Salem Center, Beast leaves Harry's hideaway only to immediately be possessed by karma, and she has him smash his way through the Hellfire Club, where she questions one of the goons about the whereabouts of her younger siblings. And this makes a lot more sense, having read that X-Force villain issue. The first time I read Beast Number 1, I had not, and had no idea what was going on. I just figured it was because the Hellfire Club's always up to some nefarious shit. I mean, they probably need punching at any given point. Now... A finally conscious Hank prevents her from torturing the goon and brings her back to the Xavier School for some serious talks with Cannonball, who for this miniseries will be played by Banshee. Yeah, those are some sideburns, huh? Yeah, Cannonball looks like Banshee here. Like, I thought he was Banshee until he said something that indicated that he was Cannonball. You could definitely do a lot worse than looking like Banshee. Oh, for sure, but like, he's got the Banshee sideburns and he's he's more heavy set. And he's, I'll put it in the visual companion, but you, you gotta take my word for it. Like, he looks like Banshee. Mm-hmm. And Karma acts like Karma. I really enjoy this impulsiveness that she has, this anger just coming from literal years of frustration, of having this one goal and have it, having it continually thwarted, having to, like, get her hands dirtier and dirtier in attempting to do it. As when Beast asks her why she didn't just ask for help. Ask? The X-Men have known of my hunt since I first began it. None have ever offered any help. We would have, but you never gave us the opportunity. To which Cannonball rejoins. She is now, Hank. She is now. Cannonball is the best under most circumstances. This is one of those circumstances. Sideburns don't hurt. Anyway... Through some convenient hacking, they are able to discover that the Hellfire Club has traded Long Naga to Viper. And Hank attempts to use Cerebro to track them down. Because, as you may recall, originally, Cerebro could be used by non-telepaths, too, just not as effectively. Now, Hank gets no luck, but Karma gets Psionic Blast and realizes they are in Spiral's body shop. So... We mentioned that it really seems like Karma just grabbed Beast because he was the nearest X-Man on his own when she had her goals, and that's kind of how Beast's miniseries feels. This is so Karma's story. And don't get me wrong, Beast is an awesome ally to have along, but he's really not very focal. There's really nothing he does in this miniseries that any given other character couldn't do, which is, is sort of what gets me about this being a Beast miniseries. It's not that he's along and, like... It's significant that it's him. No, he's he's along, and he's someone with rudimentary fighting abilities and some narration. And don't get me wrong, Beast is well-written in this. He feels like himself. He uses his powers like himself. Like, I don't object to Beast being here at all. Just kind of weird to have his name on the cover. Now, meanwhile, at the body shop, we learn that this 
information got out deliberately. And in fact, Spiral's next stop is to head to New York to collect Shen. And Cannonball and Beast manage to hop along for the ride. Which brings us to Beast number two, Body Shopping. This issue is plotted by Keith Giffen, scripted by Terry Kavanaugh, penciled once again by Cedric Nocon, thanks by Jaime Mendoza and Hackshack Studios, colored by Ariane Lenchoak, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and whoever AD is. Anno Domine. Anno Domine, there we go. Beast begins by reminding us that he's Beast. Oh my stars and garters! The body shop itself, for its part, looks kind of like a big yellow and green Age of Apocalypse-style tower, which, you know, sure... Speaking of, I don't know, savings, the heroes are quickly attacked by a bunch of Spirals mutates, but they're all just gog namagog. You know, like the big beastie demony dude that works for Mojo, but like a lot of him. This raises some questions. Was the artist just not familiar with Mojoverse stuff and just saw a Mojoverse comic and figured that this was like a random generic soldier? Or maybe Spiral made Gognamagog and the one we saw in the Longshot miniseries and other random issues was just one of them? Or maybe she finds him interesting looking and is trying to refine the design. I mean, maybe. I don't know. Spiral's a weirdo, man. Like, you can't really count on any standard logic here. No, no. And she can count on six hands, which is so many fingers. Bet she got really good at math as a toddler. Well, I guess she wasn't a toddler when she got the extra arms. Although time flows weirdly for her, so maybe? Anyway, these clones or whatever of Gognamagog are just trying to herd the heroes into the body shop building, but Karma is freaking out. She is just furious and frustrated and starts kicking and possessing, and it turns everything into a great big fight, which the heroes lose. Viper is more than a little annoyed to have the additional guests there. Spiral was originally just supposed to bring Karma back. But Spiral says, oh no, no, this is just a bonus. And then Karma demands her siblings back, and Viper says, sure, and we get to see what Spiral has actually done to them. Oh boy. Okay, so Leong is a handsome, muscular man in very tiny shorts. Okay. And Nga is... Likewise, an adult, and is wearing a metal robot suit that covers most of her body with a long head back, like she's a robo-xenomorph or maybe one of those people from this island Earth. Yeah, or uh, maybe one of the pikes from Star Wars. Anyway, uh, Karma jumps for Viper to kill her because, yeah, her younger siblings have just been, like, altered irrevocably by the look of it. But her brother and her sister are working for Viper, and Leong intercepts Karma and holy crap, like, his chest opens up to reveal a bunch of multicolored strands inside, and then the strands and the skin from the edges, like, reach out and entangle Karma. Oh man, the twins' new powers are really poorly defined, and I don't care because they are so fucking weird and body horror-y. Like, they're really, really cool. And I like this because Spiral herself is bizarre, and so it makes sense she wouldn't just, you know, take somebody and age them up and give them flight or super strength. Like, no, she is giving them powers that are confusing and gross and hard to describe. Like, when Leong then closes his chest up, the part of him that came off to restrain Karma grows legs, and so there's just these muscular bare legs walking around with, like, a hogtied Karma on top of them, and it is this wonderful mix between horrifying and hilarious. So that's fucked up. But what's even more fucked up is that Viper is is being all sexy at Gong, and that's really fucking inappropriate. 
really, really inappropriate. I mean, not even considering the mind control dynamics. Like, he's he's a kid. You know, Viper, that was, in hindsight, kind of creepy in the Tom Hanks movie Big when we found out that a grown-up lady had sex with a, a little boy even though he was in a grown-up body. And, like, this is like that, but you know better, and there's no Tom Hanks to be charming. Yeah, this is this is just extremely deeply not okay. Also, Viper, you're a Nazi, and I don't like you for that either. While all of that's going on, Nga grows a big veiny egg on her back, and then a robot suit-covered version of Karma, complete with powers, comes out of the back to mock Karma, and the first body dies. These powers are just bonkers. Beast is, understandably, horrified, and Spiral's like, dude, you should respect this, you should get this, you experimented on yourself, remember? And we get a nice little flashback of Beast taking that science serum and ending up blue and furry. Well, okay, black and furry, then gray and furry, then blue and furry. Okay, but you know what the best thing is about this page? What's that? Spiral responds to the fucking flashback captions. <laughs> you know, that is often overused between, like, Deadpool and Ambush Bug and She-Hulk and stuff, but Spiral? I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Like, I think it was just an, I think it was just a mistake here, um, because it's nothing, it's nothing she's ever done before or again, and it's not commented on, but like, yeah, she's, she just sort of picks up on a, something that, that Hank said in, in, in one of them and starts talking to him about it. <laughs> That's freaking great. I mean, okay, they're in this weird other dimension that the body shop's in. Maybe physics and brain stuff works differently here. I don't know. So Beast manages to get the injured Sam to safety on the tower before jumping back in. And for the most part, Kavanaugh is okay at Beast's patter. But when he misses a it, he he really misses. Beast says. One or two bounding blue hops to the top, a quick stop where you'll flop, and back down I drop. I'm a poet, and I didn't even know it. Yeah, sure, Hank. You know, Beast does seem like the kind of guy who would commit to even those jests and japes that don't really land, and I respect that as someone else who does the same, albeit much less acrobatically. Things are not going great, though. The karma who hatched from Nga possesses Sam and makes him start to beat Hank up. Hank won't fight back, and Karma thinks... This... this is what my power does to others? What I do? Manipulate their bodies like puppets, wear them into combat as suits of armor, forcing innocents and guilty alike to see and hear, to feel every terrifying moment, all the while hiding myself behind the curtain, safe on the sidelines... Anyway, Viper wants to start the weird mutation torture stuff on Karma, so off they go, leaving Na, who's reset to her own form by this point, to finish off Sam and Beast with a big old knife. Bringing us to Beast number three, Closing Shop. This issue is written by Terry Kavanaugh, penciled by Cedric Nocon, Paul Pelletier, and Hector Collazo, inked by Jamie Mendoza, Hackshack Studios, and Harry Candelario, colored by Ariane Lenchbeck, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and E.D. So Shan possesses... An unconscious beast and tries to use him to mercy kill Nga until Sam tackles him away, and then Nga's weird back egg hatches another sort of techno-organic Hank, who fights the now conscious Hank, but he's doing his best not to hurt her, which puts him at a disadvantage. And so he just foot juggles her like he's doing it with a ball at a freaking circus while he comes up with a plan. That is a classic Silver Age beast move. 
It is, but it also just reminds me of uh, in an early issue of Squirrel Girl, maybe even the first, where while she's trying to figure out a plan against how to beat Craven, she just keeps throwing him up in the air really, really high and then catching him and then throwing him up again. And it's great. I love that series. Also, do you remember Craven's Cray Van in that series? Every day of my life. Oh, listeners, if you haven't read Squirrel Girl, like the most recent run, it is outstanding. Meanwhile, Viper explains to a now-restrained Shan why she's doing all this. Specifically, it's the continuation of... A war your General Koi started quite a few years back. Uncle Dearest was working his way through the New York underworld at the time. A maverick with money and some other source of power that seems difficult to define, but impossible to deny. We were Hydra, dedicated to global dominion. It was business. Business as usual, until I took careful aim at the general's black hole of a heart, and then shot my unsuspecting partner dead instead. Mind-locked by a monster named Tran-Koi Man. Now, Tran subsequently forced Viper to serve in the general's harem, and she was only freed when Chan killed Tran, which robbed Viper of her chance at revenge. Thus, all of this. Is this a retcon? Because it kind of seemed like in the first issue, she was just really mad about Karma defeating her and Silver Samurai back in the day in New Mutants. Yeah, I kind of wish they'd just stuck with that. Yeah, well, here's the thing. We have a different writer. We have uh, we have Keith Giffen and we have Terry Cavanaugh, and they both work on the second, but number one and number three are by one or the other. So I wonder if this just wasn't well communicated, if for some reason... Uh, Keith Giffen had less and less time as the series was going on, and Terry Cavanaugh just had to sort of pick it up and figure out where things were going. Yeah, I have I have no idea, but I, I feel like Viper is petty enough that just that defeat would have set something like this off. Oh yeah, Viper sucks. Back in the body shop proper, Spiral is beginning to mod karma when Ngat drags in the apparently unconscious Hank. And here's where we finally see the inside of the body shop, which is... Just as bare and without detail as the quarry outside. Well, like we said, the figure work is good. Now, speaking of figures, Nga sheds her form explosively. Um, this gives Hank cover to leap into action. Turns out he had demind controlled her while they were fighting before, and he has Sam use the same nonsense tech on Leong, and then everyone has a big fight and completely wrecks the body shop. And... Spiral blames Viper for this whole thing going wrong, which, fair enough. And so she teleports Viper and all of her identical Gognamagog henchmen away, and there is this rad-as-shit panel of her in silhouette, holding a sword straight up in one hand, another sword straight to the left, another one straight to the right, and her other arms all, like, around her, with this great lens flare around each sword and this exploding sphere bursting out from the center. She just looks so powerful and so mystical. Like, she just looks like a witch in the coolest way. With her gone, Chen next sends Cannonball away via possession, and once they're alone, she asks Hank to fix the kids, to return them to their, their original bodies, and he can't. Um... Tells her they are going to be this way forever, and they will be, or at least until they get conveniently repaired off-panel. And I appreciate that in the speech bubbles that Beast uses to describe this, there's that thick black border that means he's possessed. Karma has possessed him just to use his scientific mind. She's so angry and frustrated and scared that she doesn't trust anyone unless she's controlling them at this point. She's that broken. 
later Beast has a line that he gives her, talking about the future of the twins. This is what the twins are now. Forever. What they, what we, any of us, make of such changes is what ultimately defines them, Shan. And he's talking about the twins. He's also talking about himself, his own transformation, but... He's mostly, I think, subtly and importantly talking about Shan. Shan has been through so much trauma from the assault by those pirates, seeing her parents attacked and killed, losing her siblings, seeing them transformed now twice, having allies in the New Mutants, and having them not really able to help her with the one thing she wanted, working for her criminal uncle to try to accomplish that goal and having that not work. She has been through so much horrible shit. And I like that Beast's point here is, hey, you're not stuck. This isn't who you have to be. Like, stuff didn't turn out the way you wanted, and that's awful, but, like, it's also a new day. What do you want to do with it? He doesn't try to minimize her trauma, but he also doesn't want to let her use it to define herself. And with that, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, I know that future kids are a fun component in any X-Men time travel story, but does Beast have any? I only ask because while I know his intelligence and charm make him a shoe-in for either a mentor role or the one death that dooms the future role, the law of averages tells me some writer somewhere must have thought Dr. McCoy could be a great dad. So, are there any? Well, uh, yes, at least in Earth 41001, which is the universe of X-Men The End and Gen X, both by Chris Claremont. X-Men The End is what it sounds like. It's supposed to be a story that takes place at the end of the X-Men timeline. It is written as if the X-Men stuff had happened in real time, so a lot of the characters have kids. And in this case, Beast and Dr. Cecilia Reyes have three. They have Francesca, Miguel, and Karen. We don't really know much about them, though. They just appear briefly, like twice. Yeah, they're in a total of two panels, and each of them is the same image of the three of them standing with their parents in a crowd scene. Okay, well, at least we know that they get along with their parents enough to be all right with standing next to them without running frantically away, so there's something. But, you know, Hank and Cecilia would actually probably balance each other pretty well as parents and as partners. They're both diligent scientists, but they have very different personalities that I think could uh, mesh and juxtapose quite well. Also, Hank's look in this series is pretty terrific. We'll make sure to drop an image from it in the visual companion. Oh, yeah. There are probably other universes where Beast has children, but... Look, there are like 300 Hank McCoys on the Marvel database. I clicked through as many as I could. I probably missed some. Uh, listeners, if you know of any, uh, feel free to comment on the blog. Lesbian Jubilee asks also on Tumblr, When was the idea of Karma being a lesbian first introduced? I always assumed the idea was introduced in X-Force 75 as subtext, and then heavily implied again in Mechanics, and finally made text in New Mutants Volume 2 where she refers to herself as an immigrant lesbian. But her outfits in the Beast miniseries feel kind of queer-coded, and that series was published before X-Force 75. So could the idea have originated there? Or is there something even earlier that I'm missing? As far as I know, the timeline that you've got there is is the accurate one, at least as far as on-panel um, appearances. As far as where the ideas originated behind the scenes, I have not been able to track down any details. So again, listeners, if you happen to know about this one, please drop us a line. I mean, I guess we could go back and look at Karma's earlier appearances, 
where in a book as uh, romantically constant as New Mutants, she never really showed any interest in anyone. Perhaps she was closeted or knew that it was the 1980s and not the safest thing. Don't know. But uh, yeah, as far as I know, Lesbian Jubilee, you are correct. Uh, X-Force number 75 is that first strong hint, and I think it may be the first hint we get, period. We are an entirely listener-supported podcast. Thank you, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. The microphone goes today to temporary leader of the Hellfire Club and sex aficionado Shinobi Shaw. After that mutant power removal machine disaster with X-Force, I need to focus on what's truly important. My apparently resurrected father is coming after me, and after what I did to him, he will definitely want to know whether I understand sex now. But why not another machine to acquire that information? After all, who hasn't heard of a sex machine? I've seen trucker hats advertising such a machine. Now, Ashley, let us use all of our sexual ingenuity to construct the greatest sex machine the world has ever known. A supercomputer with the fastest sexual processing unit and random axe sex memory we've ever seen. Now hand me that PCI Sexpress adapter, and let me just plug into that universal sexual bus. Ah, oh, the sex machine is on the fritz. What do all these eggplant emoji in this error message even mean? Now where is that tech support number? Ah, you're already here, Charles Einer. Uh, yes, I, I need someone to fix my series of tubes. How did you know? And... Is that the standard tech support uniform? Why, you'd be at home in the Hellfire Club with that outfit. I've always wondered why we all dressed like... Wait a minute! And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, I'll be out on vacation. But I'll be right here with special guest Connor Goldsmith of Cerebrocast. Speaking of people with arms, meanwhile in Salem Center, Beast leaves Harry's heart away. It's fucking... Harry's heart away is actually the gay bar next door. Yeah, it is. <laughs>